0: Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something
1: about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Listeners,
0: a CIA officer, a Tory, and an actual historian walk into a bar and run into the National Rifle Association. Stay tuned to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Welcome back, Alex, my friend. Hey, good to see you. And belated happy birthday
1: to you. 29 looks good on you. I appreciate it. Even 30 looks all right.
0: Yeah, well, you're a little bit ahead of us on time. So maybe you're a year older there. (laughs) Uh, Cheers. Welcome back. I see no one's going to see my cheers with my tropical. Oh, you've got your tropical okay.
1: island. They can see my cheers. Cheers. <laughs>
0: All right, fair enough. So today we're super excited. We had four great live shows in New York city at the amazing Vaughn bar, the official Fantastic. bar of the hidden history, happy hour. And uh, most of those are out. Please check us out and subscribe. One surprise episode will come out at a later time, but today it's great. We're returning to our old uh, standard format. And I'm super excited to just tell some stories. Alex is going to tell a great cautionary tale uh, for technological warfare warfare in our time. Uh, but first, we're joined, uh, perhaps Alex, our most authentic historian guest. I know we both uh, admit that we're not that. Uh, but Joe Coolhill, Dr. Joe Coolhill, aka on the interwebs, Professor Buzzkill, is the real deal. Yeah. Now, Alex, I'm going to tell... Uh, Professor Buzzkill's bio in a minute. But first, I know how you love two things, craft beer and pub quizzes. So, Joe, welcome aboard and ask Alex about camera and beer.
2: Alex, you must remember camera.
1: I do, of course. Campaign for Real Ale. Campaign for Real Ale. Good people.
2: Yes, very, very important thing happened in in your blessed country. And I think, to my mind, started off the wonderful craft beer uh, beer brew pub phenomenon that, that we've all loved ever since. Oh, so okay. I Thank want to saying it. I uh, and one of the things I remember when I was living in England back in the 20th century was <laughs> it was a fabulous camera inspired ale called. And I'm I hope this is a PG show. Yep.
0: Oh no, we're uh, we're fully it, uh, we're fully family uh, fully non-family. Go ahead.
2: Okay. The and the name of the beer and it had the most wonderful badge you know that, that are on the pint pullers. It was called the Dog's Bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> and it had, you remember this, yeah? I've it a couple of pints of Dog's Bollocks. It, it, it had a, uh, a big sort of uh, dog leaning back, man spreading or dog spreading his hind legs and his bollocks <laughs> hanging down. So that, that got me through the 90s very well.
0: Well, and <laughs> uh, and, and historian uh, Dr. Professor Buzzkill. I'm going with the German phrasing Dr. Professor Buzzkill. Um okay. I think you can also confirm as a matter of actual history that this,
2: to a great extent, spawned the craft beer movement in my country as well. Uh, well, I believe so. I believe it spawned yeah. it everywhere because yeah. I remember the, the eight, 70s and the eight. Well, I mean, I, I wasn't drinking in the 70s, but I certainly remember in the 80s and even in the late 80s when I was living in Australia, the craft beer movement wasn't going on. And camera was starting in the UK. It started in the UK, if I remember right, around 85, 80. 86 and 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 really struggled very hard to fight against those big breweries and their and
1: their power one of so we're very we're 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 in debt to those people that's i couldn't agree more and i think your timing is right because um i love the history of pubs and i've i've looked up a lot of old pubs in old camera records they they used to have these manuals yep um the trouble is if you look at those manuals from the 80s and the 90s a lot of those pubs are closed now you know the camera did great work but nothing could stem the tide of pub closures in my country it's very many historic buildings turned into flats that's the frustration uh yeah. you know you see this beautiful old building plainly a pub coder at the end now flats
2: yeah well, well I, I hate to i hate to mention this i hate to bring up oxford in front of one of at least one cambridge people <laughs> but one of my favorite pubs when i was a graduate student was the eagle and child in oxford which had been home to the inklings J.R. tolkien mm. C.S. lewis uh, those people, and uh, they would drink and talk literature, and I think that's closed now, and it's a tragedy.
1: Yeah, it's very sad. And That's that's a story that's told, I'm afraid, all over my country. And um, yeah. uh, I, I would just uh, make one point, that I think the um, Eagle Pub, uh, as was the Eagle and Child, is in Cambridge. And um, <laughs> uh, just worth bearing that in mind. Talk oh, about
0: Buzzkill
2: the, because that's the that's Eagle, the... the Eagle and Child that Tolkien and the boys went to. No,
1: no, I'm sure what? there was there was more than one, but the old <laughs> the Eagle and Child in Cambridge, which is still there, uh, which is now called the Eagle in Cambridge, um, has graffiti in the ceiling where RAF airmen uh, about yeah. to go off on their flights would burn their names in and messages into into the roof, and that's that's still there. Um, okay.
2: Well, you've got us on that, but we got you in the boat race this year. So
1: <laughs> okay. Well, all I right.
0: would say that I would say that is at least a tie. If I had to drink to airmen in our RAF Airmen in World War II or Tolkien, gosh, I work for a company <laughs> that would hate to hear me say this, but I might go with the airmen. Yeah, but we well, digress. Look, the, the other
1: thing is our eagle's still there and theirs
0: isn't. So you know, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, now that we've established beyond all doubt, uh, Joe's bona fides as a graduate of England's premier university. Uh, I still will add that uh, he teaches history at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Joe describes himself as a historian for the public. He works tirelessly to explain complicated yet compelling historical analysis to diverse audiences, as do we, Alex. He often speaks to civic, government, nonprofit and business organizations about the nature of history and about how historical misunderstandings and Mythology, much like our prior favorite guest, Mike Cole, not that you're not our favorite guest anymore, Mike, might be a tie, uh, does as well. <laughs> and so welcome, Joe. Welcome, Professor Buzz. Honored to have you. You're way ahead of us in the uh, in the podcasting game. So we'll, we'll take some leads from you, hopefully. But I did want to say, before we get going, I couldn't find the bo- dog's bollocks here. But I did go out of my way to find a craft beer that I think really probably sums up this show about as good as anything. I don't know if you can see it with my weird background, but oh, I'll just I, tell you it's arrogant bastard ale. Yeah, I've and, seen uh, that. Yes, yeah, Our funny. viewers and listeners can figure out why I selected arrogant bastard ale, as well as some Irish whiskey, because professionally, Joe
2: is an Irish historian. British and Irish, yeah. Britain and mm-hmm. Ireland in the 19th century, yeah. Do you yeah. tell
1: us a few uh, words about your, your own podcast, Joe? Please. Yeah, the
2: Professor Busco podcast tries to correct myths and misconceptions about history, miss uh, you know the urban legends of history, the gossip of history that people now believe is absolutely true that J. Edgar Hoover was a cross-dresser, that there was cocaine in Coca-Cola, uh, all sorts of things like that, and also you know, the, the, the zillions of misquotations, misattributed quotations out there. But then we take it a step further. We say, well, there's a thing. There's a thing about cocaine and Coca-Cola. But people are using that myth to talk about the war on drugs, and that's a problem. You're using a faulty mm-hmm. historical right. example to try to make a political argument, and I might I might happen to agree with that political argument in contemporary times, but the historical basis that they're using is is often faulty. We try to do it as lightly as possible, but we, we obviously have to tackle very serious subjects like Hitler or the American Civil War and... Right, things like that that are in Stalin that are very very brutal
1: well, well that's it's it's a great podcast and uh, we recommend our viewers listen to it um one story that i i only mentioned this because you were talking about uh, eagles and Ox- oxford and cambridge one other story about the eagle in cambridge that i will remember and i really don't want to be punctured so please don't examine too closely, <laughs> is is that when watson and crick were working to seek to um, explain the nature of DNA and explain the structure of DNA. They went to the pub at lunch. There's a, I think there's a sign in, in the Eagle to say this, but it's, it's canonical in Cambridge, at least, that this is the case. And over lunch, they hammered out, they had a breakthrough, a brainwave, and they hammered out the 20, whatever it is, I'm not a scientist, as you can tell, the 20 amino acids that were going to be the, the key part of working out what DNA was, and they did it in the pub at lunch. That's where I want <laughs> my scientific discoveries to be made. So if it's not true, please don't tell me. And All right. This I, is also... I won't tell you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that, that, uh, but
2: there is something about that story that is that is true. After they had discovered it, they'd made the initial breakthrough. The pub that Watson and Crick went to for lunch or maybe after work was, I think it was the Eagle, and I'm sure that's the case. And Watson says in his famous book, you know, uh, scientists always be try to be careful about. Bragging too much too early, so I was a little uh, discombobulated when Francis and I walked into the Eagle and East announced to everyone that we found the meaning of we we've discovered oh, the, the origin of life. Of life. <laughs> yes, uh, well, and there, I think that's that
0: it's that pub, that very pub. There is a certain bar in uh, in McLean, Virginia, where contrary to every security directive any central intelligence agency officer ever received. Uh, Many, many historically famous operations were concocted over a paper napkin and a couple of martinis, usually around noon. And I'm pretty sure, Alex, we learned that tradecraft from the uh, the, uh, special uh, executive in World War II. Special operations executive, yeah. Special operations executive, yeah. Now, I have to say, I am both heartened, Joe, that you're doing this great debunking uh, work and saddened. And I'm so saddened I'm going to have to open my arrogant bastard now because, Alex, yeah. Joe, in our little pre-show discussion, that's how the magic happens, folks, uh, debunked something I use all the time and I love and I've actually been relying on for my sanity. And that is Churchill's supposed saying that Americans can always be counted on to do the right thing after they've exhausted all of their options. And when things get really dark looking, like let's say a recent hearing on, uh, on January 6th, I always think, hey, maybe we're just in our exhaustion period, but Joe corrected me and alas, uh, Churchill, for all of his greatness, apparently never said that.
1: Yeah, I didn't, it wasn't, I never thought it was my place to correct you and I'm too lazy to have <laughs> looked it up, but I always had a kind of query on that one. Um, but because um, yeah, because it's too similar to uh, democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the other kinds, uh, except for all of the other options. Uh, right. what, and I'm mangling the, term, the, the the exact phrase, but he definitely did say that, I think. And it just felt like your America one was too similar to that to actually be something that he said. But you seem so happy with it that I want right. <laughs> to disabuse it, it, you.
0: Not not having it in my repertoire will increase my blood pressure substantially, but I don't have to do that because Joe informed me who did actually say it, and uh, it
2: was an Israeli leader, wasn't it, Joe? It was an Israeli diplomat, if, and, I, and I apologize to all our Israeli friends if I mispronounced it, Addis Iban, who said it in the 1950s in the United Nations. And the the, the saving grace for us Americans is that he didn't say Americans will do the right thing after they've existed. He said, men and nations have a tendency uh-huh. to do the right thing after, so it was much more universal. So it isn't right. just us, well, good. according well, to good. him, That's better, it's everyone. Then. He was a very, very, very powerful and influential sort of second tier below the, the, the media uh, gaze diplomat and politician, world diplomat and politician. Wow. So
0: Joe, as we record this in um, late June of 2022, As always in my country, there have been a number of mass shootings and a number of uh, legal actions around uh, gun laws. And since you have devoted at least a number of your episodes to debunking myths of the National Rifle Association, we definitely want to get into that with you. But first, I think we'd love to hear Alex's story of a missile mishap.
1: Thank you very much, Brian. Uh, this is a story about the Harpoon missile system, which is uh, created by an American uh, business, but this is not a story about the American military. This powerful bit of kit was sold to different forces around the world, and it constituted the main firepower of two frigates in the uh, noble Danish Navy, uh, the two naval question, uh, vessels in question, were the Peter scram and her sister-ship, the hurluf Troll, and if uh, if I've mangled those uh, pronunciations, don't complain. You'll hear to me. about it. Yeah, I know. Don't <laughs> complain to me. I, I, they may sound very abusive uh, as I say them, but neither of them are my fault. And uh, I'm going to concentrate on the Peter Scram. The these missiles were so punchy that the Danes had only fired them twice uh, in the history of having them um, equipped on their boat. The first was was the test uh, test firing. The second, uh, which was successful. And the second uh, time the the missile was fired is not so successful a story. Uh, We rewind to September 1982. The Peter Scram is out on mission, uh, poodling down from our house on the way to a NATO exercise in the Baltic. Uh, Hey, comes the order um, from the captain. We better check our super duper missile launcher and make sure that it's all in working order, right? So, the man you know, responsible f- uh, for it was a commander called Olson, and he checked over various bits and pieces. And safe in the knowledge that the launch key was securely below deck, uh, he thought there was no way the missile could be fired. Uh, and for launch key, remember you know the keys around Sean Connery's neck in the Hunt for Red October and so forth. So, in order, to- exactly. so in order, exactly, to in order to check that the um, yes, good reference. Um, and I've just I can't. Gene, Gene, Hackman, Hackman, Denzel Gene Hackman, Washington got and there. an
0: adorable little
1: puppy. Yes. And he punches um, uh, Washington. I remember um, it's a great scene of dignity, actually, in the face of aggression, that scene that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Olson is is sorting through the various um, uh, pre use protocols on the missile system. And it talks you through as long as the firing key isn't in place. Do this, do that, do the other. And to dry to to dry fire um to, to empty fire the chamber, press the, the launch key to ensure that the system is connected and is working. No chance of it firing, of course, because no, the launch no, key no, it, no launch key, yeah. The launch key is in place. So of course, as per the manual instruction, he presses the launch button. Whoosh. Oh, God, uh, Olsen, no doubt said, as some 628 kilograms of prime missile shot over his head uh, and launched off in the general direction of Copenhagen. Oh. Uh, oh. Well, this is, aw- your day. Uh, this is awkward. Uh, this is awkward. The crew, <laughs> yeah. Peter Scram, no doubt thought as they, uh, as they saw uh, their own missile heading towards their capital. And. Um, uh, the, the, the missiles were there, there were a fire and forget system, which means you just press the button and off it goes. There is no, there is no source programmable, programmable guidance, which is a phrase <laughs> I remember because it's in a, uh, a Dan Aykroyd Chevy chase movie called Spies like us, where they managed mm-hmm. to recall the missile uh, or, or change the missiles. Um, uh, flight. This is a fire and forget missile. You press the button off. It goes uh, once it's gone, it's gone and you can't detonate it remotely either. So, you know, that's you know they thought they'd really you know fired a missile into urban uh, Denmark.
0: Seems like good planning.
1: Yeah, well, quite. Um, luckily for our nautical Danes in this story, um, Brian and Joe, and indeed even luckier for their compatriots on land and in Copenhagen, yeah. the miss the harpoon it was designed for flight over sea. It was designed to go and blow up other ships and blow up um, ports uh, and uh, jetties and, and so forth. So it couldn't really cope, it turns out. They learned in <laughs> the learned so by so it to speak. of speed. Yeah, it, it, indeed. It, it couldn't really cope with adjusting its flight path to things like trees and, and houses and so forth. So four minutes into flight, thirty-four kilometers from the ship, uh the missile, which the Danes have christened the oops missile in their history of it. Uh the oops missile, <laughs> which we Hovska Missile uh in Danish. And if I've mispronounced that, don't let me know. That sounds uh, good though. Yeah, oh, thank you very like much, Hovska Missile yeah. hit a tree and the circa 220 kg warhead exploded then and there. It wiped out four holiday cottages and damaged in the region 130 other buildings. Uh, it's on the, in a town called Lamass. Injuries to individuals? Zero, none. Wow. Not one person affected, not a soul. Uh, at which point it can become funny and you can uh, enjoy laughing at the, the what the, the Danish sailors must've felt like when that, that yeah. rocket went off their ship. Coda, there wasn't there was a review. Yeah, hey, I reckon this missile can be fired without the um, uh, key in it. There's a technical problem, I think," uh, said the review. Well, no kidding said uh olsen the most relieved dane in the history of denmark um it's even possible i suppose although i don't commit myself to this that he might have showed some kind of emotion a flickering of a smile perhaps <laughs> i i can't commit to, to that and of joe setting very high standards uh, as historians so i'm not going to well, the, well we'll say the most emotion
2: since hamlet
1: well it will well, well yeah, quite I'm, exactly. but e- e- even even then it, it might makes not me been, melancholy but it might not have been detectable to us uh, as westerners so I, i'm not, I'm not going to commit to it but um politicians and media types really don't like to have accidents without having somebody to blame and yeah. unsurprisingly this incident the blameless olsen who'd done exactly what he was supposed to do in each stage of the maintenance of the missile was hounded for years in the course mm. of, of oh. his his nautical um career and in that in the end the manufacturer of the missile made a goodwill payment to denmark to cover the costs of the uh, cottages and so forth uh it's a sort of an admission uh, a fault from their end so uh, in my view it's a bit funny um uh, and it's only a bit funny because it's injury free but the lesson right. um from life is a bit like double checking you haven't hit reply all except uh with rather more consequence even if you're sure that something isn't loaded and even if you know something can't fire Don't pull the trigger whilst pointing it at anything you care about, whether it be Copenhagen or something else.
0: Well, that is a great story. And it actually is a great transition because having been through some firearms training of my own rule one, or maybe this is rule two is do not ever aim a weapon in a direction of something you do not want to kill unless you're on a target range, of course, a safe target range. And so, what happens is they have this massive capability. They they technology thinks they've outsmarted human nature, um, and it still went wrong. So one thing to think about there is you know, be careful what you buy and arm yourself with because mm. something might happen you don't intend.
1: Like I got to say, Danes never fired one again.
0: Mm. <laughs> well, that that now of course the irony will be they'll actually go to war and it won't work. But uh, it, they had they had 40 years to figure it out. So. Hopefully they have, I wonder, is there any hint in the story? I don't doubt. I doubt it, Alex, or you would have mentioned it, that there was some sort of translation error in the training manual no, when they translated.
1: No, I, I, I've never seen, uh, that, um, suggested it is, it was a simple, as I read a design floor about a, the, the process of going through the, uh, various preparation for launch stages, which meant that in some circumstances, despite the absence of the launch key, the missile could fire. I am sure that they've rectified it since.
0: Yeah, Joe. We'll get on to our main topic in a second. But any thoughts on um, either this story or famous military mishaps that never happened, or, or what are your thoughts?
2: Well, it reminds me, although it, it, in, a, in a different sort of way, of there are a number of uh, potential. The, uh, there are a number of potential missile launches during the Cold War that yes. got stopped just before um uh the missiles went off and i think we did a show on a a soviet commander petrov we definitely did yeah we did we did a show on petrov yeah yeah yeah. uh and um and when i was interviewing my he's on the front front of my book about
0: yeah all right okay there you go there you go yeah show us alex yeah that's petrov
1: although it looks a little uh, like
0: it looks a little bit like alex dean in a soviet army uniform
2: also i'll take it (laughs) (laughs) is it is this vasily petrov is that is that
1: um now you've got I, I think, yes i'm going to no, well i, I, th- would, but,
2: I think but that's there are right. a number of these examples and
1: apparently this has happened you know a
2: handful of times well this did happen a handful of times in the cold war right yeah, alex so- ha- alex has
0: a great one about a bear that almost started world war three not a not a metaphorical no. soviet bear an actual brown bear Yeah, and on that
1: one, I've always been corrected on the pronunciation because I, I, on reading it, thought it was Duluth, but I gather from Americans it's Duluth. Duluth. Uh, Duluth, uh, Yeah, if Americans can mispronounce something, you will. Decent
0: craft beer in Duluth, by the way. <laughs>
1: is that is that a Duluth product? The one that you're you're having? No, not
0: this one. But but they have good craft beer there. All right. so well, Brian, your... I
2: just want to mention again. The theme of the show is that <laughs> we only have craft beer in every part of this world now because of yes. camera. Right. right. Yes.
0: Right. I I I tease Alex, but I always give UK credit where credit is due. And apparently in the case of Churchill, I give the UK too much credit.
1: So I, I consulted, uh, consulted my book and it's Stanislav or Stanislav uh-huh. uh, Petrov uh, was the guy's name. And the Duluth story, to cut it very short for you, Joe, is that uh, uh, <laughs> the alarm was sounded at the Duluth Missile Base, which ordered uh, guys at Volk Field to getting uh, the wrong alarm went off rather than we may have an intruder it said you know prepare to scramble and these nuclear tipped fighter jets were rolling down the runway and uh it turns out that the ultra alert sentry doing his duty uh, and it wasn't his fault the wrong alarm had sounded by dint of mechanical error had actually misidentified a bear climbing over the uh (laughs) the the fence at duluth uh missile command uh, and was blazing away at a brown bear which nearly started nuclear war
0: monty python calls that a miss opportunity (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Joe, we wanted to talk with you about anything you want to talk about, but specifically i was I was fascinated by your couple of episodes of uh, the Professor Buzzkill podcast that talk about the history of the National Rifle Association. And I learned a lot I didn't know about the NRA. In
2: particular, I learned it is not an American creation, is it? No, it it takes it it borrowed quite deliberately from the british national rifle association which was founded in the 18 in the 1860s i believe part of the reason was that uh after the civil war union army commanders commanders in the united states army the sort of analysts in the military who always do this work after the, the battles are done. after action report yeah yeah they, they, well yeah uh, they, they had they had calculated now it's hard to know how accurate this was but that uh, of a th- of every 1000 rounds fired by a union soldier only one hit a confederate soldier and part of this was blamed on poor technology and and, and bad rifling within mm. inside the chamber of the rifle the barrel of the rifle mm. but mostly they they blamed it on marksmanship poor marksmanship and this is funny coming from you know, the mythology of America is you've got the backwoods Daniel Boone, the great marksman and, and hunting squirrels and, and, and fighting Native Americans and, you know, these crack shots and everything. And then turns out that they weren't crack shots. And so the National Rifle Association was, association was founded in New York, modeled completely on the British National Rifle, Rifle Association in 1871. Also because, and again, this is a sort of another European reason for the existence of the NRA, The Franco-Prussian War was going on, and the big thing that happened during the Franco-Prussian War, at least for historians, there there are a lot of things, but the big thing in terms of innovation was it was really the first first time that you know modern rifled uh, cannon and modern rifled rifles, right, and and you know what I mean by rifling, were used extensively and had improved to the point where marksmanship really started to matter. So the Americans yep. felt themselves very behind the British, certainly behind the French, and certainly behind the Prussians, and found it and the NRA f- uh, was founded for that reason to improve American marksmanship, and to and to compete against the British, compete against other countries in in world uh, marksmanship championships.
0: But so just for any yeah. of our listeners who don't know what rifling is, people talk about a shotgun versus yeah. a rifle. Uh, a, a weapon can have a, a metal barrel that's entirely smooth inside, or it can have ridges cut in it, usually in a spiral shape of some sort that, and now I'm over my skis on engineering, but somehow improves the accuracy of the weapon. So the kind of industrialization of rifling is is the advance you're talking about. I, I can't help though, but just reflect on, if I were an after action officer at the end of the civil war, I don't know if this would be second on my list to look at, but it certainly wouldn't be first on my list. First on my list would be how it was that in the Revolutionary War or the Great War of British oppression or whatever you guys call it, um, we knew how to guerrilla fight. And yet somehow 70 years later, you had all these set battles of just rows of human cannon fodder approaching each other across the field. Like what happened in those 70 years, I asked rhetorically, that we decided not to do that anymore.
2: Well, That'd I don't be my don't first know. question. That, that that probably was a, a higher priority after action question. But one of the after action yeah. questions right. was yeah. why is what well at any rate enough sort of bigwigs in the shooting world believed that American marksmanship was poor and was in danger of really falling behind this fantastic British and European marksmanship that was accelerating in the
1: 1870s. There was an there's another interesting thing that i have read of conflicts more generally around that time not just that one which was that more often than not a man would miss because subconsciously or consciously he didn't really want to hit what he was shooting at Mm. there's something in us that that very often doesn't want to take the life of the person at the other end
2: Mm. yeah i don't doubt that i don't i'm not an expert in that but but what i mean what i mean when i explain this is that this is what the nra said Right, And it's all its founding documents, everything. We are founding this because we need better marksmanship in this country. The modern world, unfortunately, has these horrible wars and these horrible weapons of war. Uh, but we are going to lose if there's ever a world war. Which uh, soon enough there was.
1: Sorry, Brian. The ahead. perils of thinking out loud. I've, I remember now that it was during my reading about Vietnam that it was the number of you know, profligate, ammunition use yeah, um, incidents where yeah. marines had sprayed tens of uh, hundreds of rounds um, towards the enemy and hit nothing. The Vietnamese yeah. were a great deal more accurate. Uh, and uh, one evaluation was that the Vietnamese really did want to hit what they were shooting at. And uh, <laughs> many of the GIs did not. Well, that's,
0: that's also a little bit of a function of by this time in Vietnam, we had fully automatic weapons. And one of the first things I was taught in government firearms training is even if you have your hands on an automatic weapon, which you probably would not as a general practice CIA officer, you almost never want to use it as an automatic weapon because it's wildly inaccurate. You always want to aim and fire and a huge part of the skill of surviving is keeping your head enough so that when the automatic fire is coming towards you, but not hitting you, you can still aim your shots. So that's another piece of it. But speaking of Vietnam, Alex, now that you so masterfully scored well on my first pub quiz, I'm so disappointed I'm gonna hit you with another one. And that is this idea of the after action report, determining that the military units needed a lot more accuracy, echoes through history, at least fictional history, uh, certain motion picture uh, that has recently been revived in a sequel, Alex, do you know what I'm referring to? Top Gun Maverick. Yeah. And that's the opening voiceover of the original Top Gun is that, at least according to the movie, this is why the Fighter Weapon School was founded. Because in Korea, we were terrible. And in Vietnam, we got a lot better. And they wanted to figure out how to teach that in, in terms of shooting down airplanes.
1: Right.
2: Apologies, Joe. Please proceed. No, no, no. I, I, must, I mean, I know very little about act, after-action reports in general and how they're accomplished. But what historians have always admired about the military is they don't, or at least the militaries that I know, they don't rely on just, "Oh well, we won." Right, right. It is, you know, I mean, the, the amount of post-D-Day analysis, for instance, is just astounding. And so we're very grateful as historians because we get all this information, mm-hmm. right? All this source material. But it's very, very impressive how the the military is able to really look at itself and say, "Well, this didn't work, and we think it's because of this." Now they might be wrong, but but that they go you know, through the not, process. They're not doing a Napoleonic. This we won because we're French, or or whatever. <laughs> there' There's right. a very. They're very serious uh, and rigorous examinations.
0: The last time I served in the US government, which was 20 years ago, almost now, 18, uh, the Department of Defense in the United States had, and I'm not making this number up, in the range of 50,000 officers whose title included the word planning. Yeah. And these were both future planners and after action people. And every, I mean, even the tiniest little overnight commando raid in Afghanistan with three guys, that would they would go through that, whether it was successful or not.
2: Right, right, right.
0: Well, we're grateful anyway, professional historians are very grateful. So now the NRA is founded in the United States. Uh, One of our presidents was president of the NRA, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Uh, the- yes, I think it was Taft. Or oh. I could be wrong about that. I, I thought, thought it was US,
0: So we 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 can cut this. I thought U.S. Grant became an early president uh, of the NRA. Right and
1: I thought that. it was Theodore Roosevelt. So, uh, <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, okay. So Grace just cut okay, to Grace just cut to Joe like. saying, "Yes, that's right, Brian." <laughs> <laughs>
1: I think we should leave the whole segment in.
0: <laughs> All right. Yes, that's right, Brian. <laughs> but the point, but 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 whoever it is, the point is, it was a very targeted, no pun intended, purpose for which it was created with the full support of the United States military and um, political leadership.
2: And and there's no question that it had the full support, more or less, of the country. If you had sat down with people at the time and said, and explained it, they would have said, well, sure. Uh, people who remembered the, the Civil War remembered how much butchery there was. And mm-hmm. if, if marksmanship can actually decrease butchery... Right, uh, improve marksmanship can decrease butchery. Then that's a good thing, and also all the East Coast elites from Washington up to Boston, you know, they're reading the European news like crazy, and their their eyes are extremely wide at these technological advancements by the French and mm-hmm. the Prussians. So it is, you know, it it's the obvious thing to do. Now, right. what what uh, do you want me to move on to? How yeah, that uh, then yeah. When does when does it go awry, Joe? In well. Your view? What happens is they 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 start running these shooting competitions or start participating in worldwide shooting competitions and actually start winning. When they defeat the British Imperial team uh, for the first time, I think in the early eighteen nineties, oh, please a huge, spend as long as you want on that. It's a it's a huge victory. It's a huge uh, celebration in the in the in the American sporting world and in the American military world. But gradually, the NRA uh, the NRA also starts to expand about hunting. Because, remember, the United States is also changing dramatically in the early 20th century. The big New Deal projects, dams, and all that sort of stuff are completely changing an awful lot of uh, the landscape in the country. So mm-hmm. a lot of traditional deer hunting grounds are being, are being submerged, and wildlife is having to be moved. Deer. I, I come from Pennsylvania, I'm in Pennsylvania very deer-heavy, hunting-heavy state. Um, a lot of deer populations get very concentrated because everything, a lot of changes are being made. So the NRA adds to it the idea that we need to uh, increase and protect or, or at least promote responsible hunting. And that's very, very popular. Boy Scout troops mm-hmm. are given awards by NR, NRA local NRA chapters for shooting competitions for the Boy Scouts and all that. All that stuff really... Ha, uh continues perfectly normally with almost no opposition from anybody on um, even even during the so you know the so called uh, crime waves of the 30s and uh the you know the mob era and all that sort of stuff there isn't really much call for gun control until the 1960s mm-hmm. partly because of the assassinations partly because there's a proliferation of very cheap handguns uh, throughout the United States, and and then after the assassinations of of President Kennedy, then Martin Luther King, then Bobby Kennedy, LBJ puts together uh, a gun control act. And apart from one aspect of it, which was gun registration, the NRA supports the act completely. And by the way, the gun registration is left out of the act, but there are all kinds yeah, of you- other measures. You you, that, have great, LB, you have a great you have a great sorry Joe,
0: I was just going to say you have a other, <laughs> sorry sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say you have a. I'm going to plug your show, Joe. You have a great uh, clip on on one of your episodes, which we'll put in the show notes of the LBJ's essentially verbal signing statement, his speech when he when right. he announced the signing, and he very persuasively calls that out, and he says, not that this legislation I'm signing is worthless, but essentially. This will not get the job done
2: until we can have national registration. Yeah, and, and mostly LBJ in that speech and, and pro-gun control people at that time were not anti-NRA because the NRA was extremely moderate, very mostly very level-headed. There were other more extreme gun groups, and they're worried about groups like the Black Panthers, that when the Black Panthers show up in California assembly with guns, even though it's perfectly legal, people freak, and uh, President Truman's life had been threatened in the, in the mid '50s, uh, in the uh, in the late '40s by uh, Puerto Rican nationalists with handguns. Yeah, across the street, Blair House. Yeah. So, so there, there and the NRA would never have, and and, and in, that, in those days would never have defended these things, right? So the NRA, if you will, is 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 still a very moderate. Um, gun organization, concentrating mostly on marksmanship, but especially by the 60s, really looking into the outdoor life. Mm -hmm. So what they don't want is government cracking down on people that want to have rifles for outdoorsmanship. And in fact, the NRA is, by 1970, mid-1970s, thinking of moving itself to Denver, to we to emphasize that we are now a Western, we're in a shooting, you know, blah 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 blah. Yeah. It's not marksmanship; we've got the military to handle that now. We're gonna concentrate on on expanding hunting grounds, expanding national park places we're gonna we hunt and all that sort of stuff. There's this very small group in the in the late sixties and mid seventies in the NRA, fewer than five hundred people who because of what they perceive as, as rising crime, especially rising racial crime, people are terrified to death. The Martin Luther King riots and things like that yeah. in the '60s and '70s. They get very, very paranoid about gun control, and so whereas the the bulk of the NRA is pro gun control, at least up and, up uh, and up up until and not including registration, there's this hardcore minority that's starting to treat it as a sect, as a as a religious almost cultish devotion to the second right.
1: amendment you, you're telling me something that i i absolutely didn't know just say that again until what there was a the majority of the nra were in favor of gun control at least up until registration and sounds like the
0: vast majority
1: this is fascinating yeah. and uh, uh, uh until the early 70s
2: well what happens well, is a little later a actually and uh, the, the, the the there's a group of these these hardcore radicals in the NRA in the mid 70s start to really and the idea is we're going to we're going to have to take over the NRA in order to accomplish in order to protect what we believe the second amendment says. And so at the famous 1977 annual meeting in Cincinnati they do that and they do it through sort of parliamentary tactics and and the NRA was a sort of you know like a huge rotary club or something everyone voted everyone talked voting from the floor blah blah blah. Well these guys figured out they could very strategically work the meeting and work the agenda and vote everyone off the of the board of directors and everything else. And they did all this in 1977 in Cincinnati and started making the NRA move into a much more extreme version where they, frankly, forget about hunting, right? And they, they work from then on on, uh, on purely preventing <clears throat> almost any legislation uh, about gun
0: control. I'm just going to take a wild guess here, completely uninformed guess. Would this possibly have also coincided with a massive ramp up in their national fundraising activities?
2: No, that happens afterwards. So oh, they, they also right. becomes yeah. very they become very sophisticated. They become very sophisticated. The idea is the sort of paranoia leaks in that a gun They're control for is your going guns. to take away. Yeah. Right. And so they very a man named Harlan Carter uh, very, very shrewdly gets involved in massive fundraising, massive membership drives, and also massive legislative pressure. Yeah. So the NRA becomes a lobbying group for the first
0: time. I was on a Senate campaign in 1984 for a liberal Democrat, Tom Harkin, in Iowa, very heavy hunting state. And so right. I was on the in the grassroots. And this was really the first big Senate race where the newly reconstituted NRA, the religious right, and some of the other far right groups started to really work together to target seats and and my guy was one of them. And I probably spoke with dozens if not hundreds of literally card carrying paper card NRA members in Iowa who absolutely had no idea what their dues money was being spent on in Washington. And if you asked them any of these legislative priorities of the DC NRA, they would say, "I, I don't know what you're
2: talking about. I just want my kid to get certified. Right. Right. Exactly. And what what starts to happen, now remember, I, as I say in my show, so the episode that we just released Thursday, a few days ago, uh, talks about this. And before the episode, I sort of have this long introduction. And where I, where, where I compare the time period from 18, from 1977 to now is roughly the same, almost 50 years, as the time period from the, the uh, from 1800 to 1850, yeah. when the sectional crisis and the Civil War start, and during that time period, because of of the improvements in cotton production, slavery becomes a sort of sacred thing to Southerners, especially Southern elites and Southern plantation owners. And whereas there's there's been you know slavery is always evil and always immoral, but in the founding generation, had sort of ambivalent ideas about well, you know, we we'd like they banned the slave trade, but but we, you know, we don't know what to do with it. They're they're unhappy with the morals of it, but it's like the way the world is. Well, between in those fifty years of the first half of the nineteenth century, the uh, slave owners start to believe that God granted them slavery, and that slavery mm-hmm. is what made. The British Empire great, the Roman Empire great, the Greek Empire great, the Egyptian Empire great. Mm-hmm. It is the natural order of things, and that that vision gets so extreme yeah. by the, the uh, by the outbreak of the Civil War that all the leading Confederates are saying it as their number, not only the number one reason for the Civil War, but the number one basis upon which their entire society is based, and that sort of development right is to me parallels with the NRA. So the NRA for most of its history is is normal, if you will, and and more or less unobjectionable. But in these last 50 years because of what they the, these things that they've come to believe, those things that then just steamroll and they mm-hmm. get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And if I say, look, I don't want assault weapons or I don't want these kinds of things People, they, they, that's where the slippery slope thing. You're are, challenging companies. God. Yeah. Well, you're challenging God, and you're telling, and there are these awful companies now that have these. Uh, Daniel Defense is one of them. Have these ads in which they have a an assault rifle in a child's lap, and this, and they, and the ad just says, has a, a verse from Proverbs over it, saying something, "As a young man teach him in the wage of righteousness, and he'll grow up to be righteous," or something like that, with a gun. So, and, and that they have other ones that have where where they have a they have an a an assault rifle with a crucifix dangled over it almost like a rosary saying he is risen and uh, you know yeah. I'm not the world's greatest Christian but I'm pretty sure that it's not in the Bible that you know well rifles Joe, are Christian <clears throat> Joe
0: you don't know this my, my father was an episcopal minister uh the the stepchild of the Church of England and right. um so I say this with uh, a certain amount of humility, but I think, Alex, uh, it's already midway through the episode time, we can announce one of our lessons from history. Uh, whether it's in English or Russian, beware the natural order of things. Right, well, yeah, I think, I think that's true.
2: Anytime somebody invokes that, you're about to get whacked, but go ahead. Well, and I, just, I came up with that parallel because, because as I say, I don't, want to get, I don't want anyone to misapprehend what I'm saying. The justifications for slavery have always been wrong and always been immoral, but they deepen so greatly in the, in the first 50 years of the 19th century that it's, it's shocking what the Confederates say in the 1850s. And the, the paranoia and the slippery slope arguments following this 1977 transformation of the NRA lead to these unbelievably shocking things you see. Yeah. Uh, gun manufacturers and gun rights organizations do. I had a student recently, and I won't say what semester or anything like that, who wore a T-shirt into class. Said, now, remember, this is Pennsylvania, so it's a shooting state. Wore a T-shirt into class that said, it had a bunch of uh, bullets on or guns on one side and, and the numbers of their calibers on the other, right, listed down the things. And then said, I don't call nine one one because I have these numbers to protect me. Right. I mean, this, this this is, you know, this is genuinely a national illness, and we see the effects of that, damn near every week. Well, let me stop you there. I think this is a really good jumping off point,
0: and for people who want to know more about the various errors of the NRA, Joe's got just amazing podcasts about it that go into great depth. But Alex, yeah, I know you've spoken a little bit about this. Joe just said that we, meaning Americans, have this national disease. And I, you know, it's hard to disagree with that uh, on this issue. Why don't you have it in the UK? Why don't they have it in Australia? Why don't they have it in New Zealand? Or do they?
1: In none of those countries do we really have that um, issue. And in part, it's because we, over the course of the 20th century, greatly tightened our control over what guns you could buy and own. At the same time that you were liberalising yours, and um, sad to say, but perhaps predictable, um, these things were sparked in both my country and in Australia by tragedies. They were they were sparked by mass killings, and um, I don't mean to make light of of any of those those things. Indeed, quite the, the reverse. But I I simply point out that it feels so wrong when we see these stories. Often, yeah, recently. I think two on the Children. same day two on the same day in the united states uh, yeah. uh of mass killings in which um which don't seem to produce the same kind of of results amongst your lawmakers right and the one thing i would say about this as a and i hope it doesn't sound too self-serving or um thinking too much about my own political tribe but I would refute any suggestion that this is a conservative position or belief or a, conser- ne- a necessarily conservative position to take that you should have be very laissez-faire when it comes to people owning automatic weapons uh, and, and so forth. My great political hero on the, in the conservative movement, John Howard, who was a long-serving uh, leader of the Liberal Party in Australia, which is their conservative party, after their of Port, Arthur, yeah, the Port Arthur massacre, in which many people had, I think 30-plus people had been killed um he instituted a remarkable set of, of of um buybacks two rounds of buybacks to i think somewhere north of 1.5 million uh, weapons off the street in australia and uh, and bans and and um restrictions on what you could buy in in the future now australia of course at the time it was it had a lower population than it does now and if you think about their population now is about 30 million. Now, it was perhaps in the mid, mid to high 20, mid to high 20s. Um, at the time, one and a half million guns coming off the streets—a very significant proportion of the population that had had weapons um, at that time. I know it's not quite getting up to having more guns than people, uh, but it's uh, but it's a lot of, uh, of weapons. And uh, he took that decision, which was very unpopular with some people, and very unpopular with some people on his own side. And I remember he, he there was we have come up recently to a, one of the anniversaries of, of that massacre in Australia, and they interviewed John Howard, who um, who was reflecting on it, and he said, "I just felt that if I couldn't do something about this, then I wasn't up to the job." Yeah, and I think that's the right mentality.
0: Yeah, you know, and I I, think- I I I would argue j- the, to reinforce what you said, Alex. Not only is this um, radical interpretation of our second amendment, not conservative, uh, because that wasn't the interpretation for how, whatever, how Joe can tell us 200, 180 years. It's radical. It's a, it's the radical redefining of something that neither the founding fathers in the federalist papers, nor as far as I can tell Joe, anyone in any of the debates ever in Congress up until the time period you're talking about argued that that was the second amendment meaning.
2: I think the whole NRA argument and the whole NRA cultish belief in what they now believe is outside uh, the normal range of, of left and right, conservative reform, whatever you want to call it. It's 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 in its own little uh, sphere of weirdness and, and mental illness, if you will. If anything, Alex, it, it represents some of the more—it's more like some of the, the extreme— of views held on other uh, topics like the de- the Democratic Unionists in Northern Ireland. So, what what things really impressed me about mm. Australian conservatives and the British Conservative government is they all all the all both of those cabinets immediately said yes, we need to do this, and they led their countries. And I and I, I'll, I'll push back with you a little bit because I remember the Australian experience, and I remember the I think the majority, and someone have to fact check me on this the vast majority of australian gun owners very very willingly
1: uh, uh, turned over their guns and agreed with this no sure yes, was, was you you're right it was a minority opposition but it was vociferous yeah. and it, yes, was it was largely was on his own political side
2: <clears throat> right but the, but the key as you as you rightly point out with john howard is he and i hate to say this he stuck to his guns you know <laughs> this is this was the this was the right thing to do and after dunblane in scotland yeah I think that happened under a Tory administration. If if yes, but by mistaken. then we had
1: we had already instituted a large number of – Dunblane was a school massacre, Brian, and in, 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 in one Scotland. of the strange coincidences of, of, of modern life, and as we're recording this, the Wimbledon Tennis Championships is being played. Um, yeah. Britain's uh, leading tennis player, Andy Murray, was a student at the school. Um uh. But by the time that Dunblane happened, it mo- most of our restrictions on what weapons you could buy in the UK were already in place because there was an earlier massacre at Hung- a place called Hungerford, in yeah, which a guy right. took to a church tower, I think it was. If it wasn't a church tower, it was a clock tower, and, um, and systematically uh, set about murdering some of his fellow Hungerfordians.
0: Is that um, but, but, but the, the, the basis of me- the Boomtown Rats song, I Don't Like Mondays, Alex, or is that a different shooting?
1: Do you know? I don't think that is. I think I don't think it is.
0: Well, we'll look it up. Yeah.
2: Uh, the so key, the reason, the key Joe, difference to me uh, is is that that the politicians did it.
1: Right. No, I follow. You know, I follow.
2: The politicians did it. They, even if it was even if there was a hardcore opposition from uh, mi- minority opposition within their own parties, they did it. And yes, you're right. Uh, Britain was far ahead of Australia in terms of getting rid of uh, of, of restrictions on guns, but after both Hungerford and D- D- Dunblane, they limit you know they went all the, they went all the way and finished yeah. it off and no well, so, no sane person in britain disagrees with this it's just uh, I, it's just yeah
1: there's there's certainly no lobby in my country saying let's liberalize our gun laws no. that's just uh, most of our police are unarmed uh, but i, I right it's very, there's a, there's an interesting facet to what brian's asked me that i think um may demonstrate how long-standing this discussion is i mean the boomtown rats, the rats are not a good band uh, and haven't really <laughs> been writing stuff for, for nigh on 50 years so which is, that's the first point is it was inspired by a massacre it was a while ago the second yeah is, but food
0: aid, aid but food aid
1: so. oh yeah okay well all right I, uh, um <laughs> but um and bob gilder's uh political posturing is not something you want to attach yourself <laughs> to but the, the, the point <laughs> i was going to make was if I, unless i've misremembered things He was inspired by reports of an American massacre when he wrote that song. Now, I that may be right. uh, uh, If if I'm wrong, we'll we'll, no. It may be
0: be the San Diego one. I think you might be right.
1: I don't know. I don't know where in the
0: States it was. I just remember that's that was my recollection. Well, I don't think as poorly of the song as you do, but uh, I think I think we we are right. We'll put it in the name another
1: Boomtown song.
0: I didn't say there I, like you go. I said, I said, there I don't think it's about the song as you do. <laughs> also boomtown rats is a cool name. Anyway, uh, Agreed. I, I, the the reason I Joe keyed in on this national disease point, And the reason I kind of derailed the discussion, which I, you know, make no bones about when you're on your, where you're on your, when we are on your podcast, you can derail our discussion is you know there are, as Alex pointed out, and as LBJ said even 50 years ago, more weapons on the streets in 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 the United States than there are people. Or I guess in LBJ's
2: time, families. Yeah. And uh, so uh, crucially, LBJ said in '68, said we now have more firearms than families. Families. And that was a shocking statement at then. And now it's now. Yeah. We have more firearms than humans. Yes. So that's a, a very sad thing.
0: But that's also it's also my point, which is that. I should, just to keep things fair and balanced, note that as we're recording this, our Senate and House of Representatives president in the United States have now agreed, signed into law the first gun control legislation in three decades. Now, it's not very strong, but it's the first time anyone has stood up to the NRA in in the United States, and they got 14 or so Republican votes. So I would say all is not lost, but I would also say... As long as there are this many weapons on the streets not to make a bad pun but don't we need to treat the disease more than the weapons I mean if we don't change our attitude it doesn't matter how many guns you we mean the, off the guns street. are
1: the symptoms not the not the cause no.
0: yeah yeah and and also like we've lost that battle I mean I don't think there's enough warehouse space or money to buy back all the dangerous weapons on the streets of the US not that I'm saying we shouldn't try but we have to change attitudes
2: no, Well, I think the more people that – I wish a lot more Americans would live abroad, at least for a short period of time. I've lived in Australia, and I've lived in Britain in two stages. And every – not only I, but every American that I know that's been in similar situations, after about six or eight months, coming on to a year, after you're living in a place like that, you sudden this sort of – this feeling comes over you. You realize, oh, I'm not going to get shot. Mm Mm-hmm whereas you know I have to take my son I had to take my son to school every day and he went to school very close to a synagogue in, in Pittsburgh named the Tree of Life which is where a huge shooting was yeah. uh, my, my it's just shocking that I, we never had we never had uh, active shooter active drills shooter when I was drills, a kid yeah. in the yeah. 60s and 70s <clears throat> and now it's, they're and now they're just kind of, he he talks about active shooter drills if it's
1: yeah okay there was a different
2: sort of lunch period it's yeah. just it's shocking shockingly
1: insane Your point about that, you know, travel broadens the mind is is a cliche because it's true. And what you've just said is an argument that I often use in the course of much more mundane um, debates because people have quite a myopic perspective, a very narrow uh, attitude about the healthcare settlement in my country or our national right. broadcaster, and they can't imagine things being any different and you just wish they'd lived abroad for a while. So much more profound to, to the to your point, yeah, you know, live in a country that does where where people walking around with guns isn't normal, which is to say most of the world.
2: yeah. yeah. and it is really a feeling that comes over you uh, unconsciously It's just all of a sudden, oh, that's right. I'm not well, there's sort, a, there's
0: sort of a <clears> there's sort of a there's sort of a grand tradition here in the U.S. every presidential election where the party who thinks the other party's leader is extreme, which I guess is every election now, uh, will say, if so-and-so gets elected, I'm moving to Canada, or if so-and-so gets elected, I'm moving to the U.K. And I've never said that because, you know, I think I feel patriotically inspired to support the American experiment. I will say, though, a friend of mine who I was having this kind of debate with about guns um, said to me, well, yeah, Canada has a lot of problems too, but I don't have to worry about my kid getting massacred in school. And my daughters are both grown, but, you know, God willing, they'll be granddaughters someday and our sons and um, or binary, non-binary people. And, uh, you know, it's something you got to think about, honestly.
2: Yeah, every country, we all have all of the same exact problems. I could get hit by a bus here. I could get hit by a bus in the UK. I could fall off a cliff. I could fall off a cliff. But only in the United States am I going to get shot. Yeah, although on the flip side, only in
0: Amsterdam are you likely to be run over by an angry mob of cyclists. That's true. So, or
2: in that. Denmark, hit by a stray
1: <laughs> missile. <laughs> the oops missile. We're drawing on. Yeah, so the, we've come full circle. We, we have. I just wanted to give one bit of a data point to reinforce the extent of the history behind your true meaning of the NRA marksmanship point, and its and its heritage in in my country. Because I've been noodling this out as you as you were talking, and I was thinking about the fact that. There are many, and this is not, I'm not being smutty. It's just what they're called. There are many Mm -hmm. parts, there are many areas in my country, parts of villages and towns, which are called butts. So the streets are often butts this and butts that. I live near one, there's one called Newington butts. And the butts were where you were obliged to go and practice your archery. It was Mm. compulsory. And um, uh, it was very often near the church, which is how a lot of these these names have survived in the in the lane next to the church because it was convenient on the Sunday after having uh, gone and, and worshipped to undertake your national duty because you might be called right. up if you were a man between the age of 15 and whatever the other upper age was um, to practice your archery. And that was the case for hundreds of years. It was about improving marksmanship in order that if you were required to serve your country in time of war, you would be ready and able to. And that was a tradition that we had I think it was the 13th century it began in my country certainly by Agincourt it had been in place for 1415. been in place for a long time so uh, that that is a a long and noble heritage well before the founding of, of America that demonstrates that the the purpose of these organizations as they were constituted was about marksmanship and not about putting a gun in every person's hand in civilian life.
0: And as you mentioned that, Alex, I'm going to make this up as I go along, which is always dangerous, but that possibly could be one of the historical antecedents for the phrase that is the center of the debate in our country about the Second Amendment, which opens the amendment by saying a well-regulated militia, militia. being something exactly. like ne- necessary for self-defense or something. I'm, I'm mangling the, the security next- of a free state. Yeah. Yes, that. Yes, very important it may be that that was part of what was in the heads of the framers when they wrote that amendment. Now, I will say, uh, as a constitutional lawyer now, putting on my lawyer hat, um, or or beard, wig, not beard, lawyer wig, um, that I wish more people on all sides of our debate would treat the Bill of Rights a little more equally. So we have lots of Democrats who believe the First Amendment is absolute, which it's not. And the Second Amendment means nothing, which it does mean something and vice versa on the mm-hmm. right. You know, you, you. I don't actually think it's worth assigning too much value to which amendment is literally sequentially first, second or third, but oh, it's not technically rational. They're all equal. Yeah. yeah. And it's not rational constitutionally to say no, no one has opinion. more force <laughs> than the other. No. It just, it doesn't make sense. And a lot of our scholars do it. And Joe, We've taken way too much of your time. Oh, we great. could go on for hours. It's fascinating. And next time, I just want you to criticize Alex's history more. That's my only request.
1: Everyone's got to go and listen to the Buzzkill Professor Buzzkill podcast. Yes, brilliant. Thank you,
0: <laughs> gentlemen. Cheers. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Thanks, Joe.
1: Yeah, here I'm
2: raising a, a, a mug of the dog's bollocks. <laughs> cheers, yeah. to the, cheers to that.
1: Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented
0: production team of Jeremy Corr, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers.